0: Welcome to another Sunday morning Salvation by Grace message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly in Smyrna, Tennessee. Grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
1: Majestic God, the maker of heaven and earth, the creator of all things and everything, the one who's in control of every universe and every atom, the God who lives in holiness and splendor, who has encased himself in light that no man can approach, that God chose to send his son to the planet, Christ, our Messiah the very Lamb of God, he laid down his life on behalf of his brethren in order to pay our sin debt. And our sin debt to a righteous, holy God was overwhelming and tremendous. And Christ died to pay that debt. Therefore, we are free to worship and praise God without fear because he has cast out that fear by his perfect love for us. As a result of the sun coming to the planet, dying, resurrecting, ascending on high, the Holy Spirit indwelt those people who God chose from the beginning. The Holy Spirit guides and directs and leads us, The Holy Spirit teaches us, educates us, leads us back to the things of Christ. Leads us into all truth. He is, according to Jesus, the spirit of truth. And then on top of all that, the God who created this entire scheme, this entire environment in which we find ourselves, the one who sovereignly determined how he would save people and what the methodologies were going to be, also gave us his word, and his word is inerrant. By that, I mean that the original autographs were without error. They said exactly what they meant to say. It's trustworthy, and it's complete, complete in as much as it will get us all the way from here to our predestined, eternal home in heaven. So, the full triunity, the God and the Son and the Holy Spirit, all worked for your benefit. We're talking about the benefits of Christianity today. And that's a tremendous benefit. Because you're, well, you're you. And God is almighty. And he does whatever he wants. And part of what he wanted to do was save you. And because you were so... Sinful, depraved, because you were an enemy of God. He had to construct a plan whereby he could take sinful, wormy you and bring you into his enlightened presence, his holy presence, his everlasting presence, and he did that by sacrificing his son in your place. Do you have any sense how great a benefit that is? Because he didn't do that for everybody. There are people on the planet who don't know a thing about God's Word and when they read it, it is a closed book to them. They look at it and just think that it's fairy tales and old wives tales. Or as someone once said to me, it's just things written by some guy 2,000 years ago. And yet, To those who have the Holy Spirit, to those who have enlightened minds, to those who have a new heart, open ears, eyes that see, to us the very word of God is the instruction method by which we understand things that we could not have understood any other way had God not told us. And that is the reason that we concentrate here at GCA on the word and what the word says. Every time you pick up your Bible, that's a benefit from God. Amen. He has given you his word, and he didn't give it to everybody. I don't just mean he handed you the Bible. I mean he gave you the ability to read your Bible and understand it, and actually take it to heart, and actually think about it, actually muse on it, actually be Comforted by it, be instructed by it, be corrected by it. And not everybody has that ability. God gave you the ability, and He gave you His Word, and He gave you His Holy Spirit to seal that Word in you so that you will persevere in the faith that the Bible describes to the end of your days and then launch off this planet into eternity. Big benefits. benefits. As a result of all that, we're still here on the planet, we're still walking out our lives, terrestrial and difficult as they may be, going through the trials, suffering the slings and arrows, and yet we walk with confidence. Yet we walk with this sense of comfort and their sense of peace in an ever-increasingly crazy world, to the degree that people don't even understand how we can have this peace that passes understanding, how we can have that kind of hope, and so they inquire of us where we get that kind of hope, and we are told that we should be prepared to give an answer for that hope that lays within us. So all the things that God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit and the word itself have done for us up until now turns us into a particular type of person, a particular kind of person that is different than the people of the world. We are people with a heavenly calling and a heavenly destiny, and therefore we are not like the earthbound dusty creatures. We are people who have an upward hope. We are people who are looking forward to the day of our leaving this planet and taking up our glorified bodies and living eternally in the light of God. That is a great great benefit that we can walk through our lives with that kind of hope and confidence and trust me when I say not everybody has that. Mm -hmm. I hear from people who are just plain afraid. People who are just fearful of what's going on in the world right now. Between pandemics and riots and political uprisings and The threats of what may happen at the next election. And then, of course, people losing their jobs and people struggling to find food and money and provide for their families. It's a tough time right now. And yet, we still get up every day, put one foot in front of the other, confident that God has our back and that we're going to get through this day and he's going to provide for us and that we're going to eat and we're going to wear clothes and that... As dangerous as this life might become, the worst thing that men can do to us is kill us, and then we go home. So we walk with this sort of confidence in life, this kind of boldness in life, where we know that the sovereign of the universe, the creator of all things, the one who made heaven and earth, actually cares what happens to us. As a result, last week I said that our lives would become more stable and more grounded if we were genuinely Christian. We're not going to be knocked off balance by any emotional circumstance. And strong people, influential people, erudite people, and media rumors and online lies are not going to get to us. They're not going to upset us because we learn to go through all the difficult situations of life rather than avoiding them or rather than finding the easy way out we work our way through the difficulties of this life confident that God is with us and that brings us to point number eight of the benefits of being a Christian and this is big this was big for me when I came to understand the sovereignty of God. This was, to me, genuinely life-changing. So I hope that I can convey it in a way that is also significant to you. Your life, whatever your life is, and the things that you go through in this life all have purpose. Your life is not random, Your life is not purposeless, and your work, what you get up to do every day, whatever your hand finds to do, you do it as unto the Lord. Your talents, your abilities, your giftings, you recognize that those are things that were given to you from God, and so you utilize those things to the glory of God, the way that you parent The way that you do your job, all of your passions, all of your concerns in life. And yes, even your suffering on this planet has purpose. Because it's all in the hand of an absolutely sovereign God. Who if he was not working his purpose through the things that you go through, you wouldn't be going through them. But he has a purpose for the things he does. And when I came to understand that even my suffering had purpose. It gave me the hope and the confidence and the endurance to deal with the suffering. And I am somebody, by the way, you're looking at an old man right here who has actually endured some suffering in life. Some of it physical, some of it emotional, some as the result of a surgery that tried to kill me back in 2001. And through it all, I can look back and say that even in my most faithless moments, God was faithfully with me, causing me to endure or I wouldn't be standing here right now. And so one of the great benefits of Christianity is that you can look at your life, every aspect of your life, how you raise your kids, how you do your job, how you make decisions, how you interact with other human beings, all of your talents, all of your abilities, and even the way that you struggle or suffer through this life, you can recognize in it that everything has purpose behind it, and therefore you understand that God indeed, sovereignly, has your back under all circumstances. And that, once you get a hold of it, once you really get a hold of it, that will get you through the times of trouble that destroy the world. People who have no sense of God, no understanding of God, no sense of his word, I don't know how those people endure times like we're enduring now. Or times of trouble in the world, the... Long history of the world is a long history of human difficulty and suffering and people fighting each other and plagues and diseases and starvation and that, that's the history of the world. So year by year by year by year, God keeps handing out the kind of things that will either drive people away from him or drive people to him and you as a Christian are fortunate that the spirit within you keeps driving you back to God. Has anybody here ever tried to escape him? Because I have. Betty was honest. Betty raised her hand. The rest of you, you bunch of liars. Um, Yeah, I, I have actually tried. I used the phrase, I would quit if there was someone to quit to. But... Even in my most angry days, when I was frustrated with this job, when I was frustrated with uh, the circumstances in the church, the person, for lack of a better word, the one that I went to to talk about it was him, and he's the one I was trying to run away from. And I couldn't get away from him. I kept having to go back to him. And then gently and firmly, he would make me bow the knee again. And recognize his absolute lordship over my life. His absolute sovereignty. And then I come to my right mind and I recognize that he deserves my worship and praise and the absolute best that I can possibly give him. If I'm doing less than my best, I feel like I'm cheating him. So, your life has purpose. Turn to Colossians 3, and we'll start looking at texts. It would be easy, the next couple of passages we're going to look at, it would be easy to kind of hone in on the key verse, the verse that is saying the essential same thing that I have just said but I want to read larger passages so that you understand the context as well Colossians 3, I'm going to start reading at verse 12, you're going to recognize that immediately there is an indicative and an imperative Paul starts by saying so As those who have been chosen by God, there's the indicative. Who are you? Who's Paul writing to? How does he identify the saints? He identifies them as those who have been chosen by God. Therefore, you know who you are so that Paul can then say, here's your imperative. If you are chosen by God, if you have been elected by God, if you have been separated by God, if you have been called to God by God, then here's how to be. So as those who have been chosen by God, holy and beloved, don't pass by those two words, holy, separated, not like the world. The world is not holy, the world is not righteous, the world does not care about the things of God. But you, because you've been called by God to God, therefore you are separated, which is what that word holy essentially means, hagios, that you are separated so that you can no longer be used for common everyday use. You now belong to God and are designated as a holy separated object and beloved. That's the reason you're holy. That's the reason God called you. Because it all begins, I say again, it all begins with God having love. God being love. God who is love. And then God choosing to place that magnificent, eternal, everlasting, incomprehensible love of God on you. You. You know what I'm saying. You. I mean, come on, Kellen. I mean, come on. Just you. So as those who have been chosen by God and of God holy and beloved here's your imperative put on a heart of compassion now it would be easy for us at this moment to say I thought that was the Holy Spirit's job the Holy Spirit that inhabits us is a governor on our behavior changes the way that we think changes our heart and mind makes us born again, regenerates us. So wouldn't it really be the Holy Spirit's job to give us a heart of compassion, kindness, generosity? Wouldn't that that be the Holy Spirit's job? You'll notice here that Paul does not say the Holy Spirit's going to do this for you, even though without the Holy Spirit you could not do it. Nevertheless, you are instructed to make sure that you put on this heart of compassion that you sense what other people are going through and that you have genuine empathy for what they are going through and that you show genuine feeling, compassion for other people. Put on a heart of kindness. I've told you before that the English word kind is actually a contraction of the old English word kind. kin, just meaning family. So to be kind to somebody, sometimes that sounds like a sort of vague concept, like you think it means, you know, just be generally nice to them. But what it means is treat them the way you would treat your family. Treat them the way you would treat your kids or your mom and dad. Consider them to be family and put on a heart of that kind of consideration for people. Put on a heart of humility. Put on a heart of humility how many times have we heard that after going through the Proverbs we saw it time and time and time again repeatedly the most common oft repeated sin in the Bible is the sin of pride and so put on a heart of humility, Paul says this so frequently, he writes to the Philippians and says consider others as better than yourself Look after the things of others and not only after your own things. Paul says that in this compassionate way that we live, in this family kinship that we have among each other, that we should not start thinking of ourselves as the important one. Jesus himself said, don't take the high seat, take the low seat, wait to be asked forward. And so this concept, whether it's coming from Jesus or Paul or the Proverbs and Solomon, it's consistent all the way through the Bible, that one of the chief characteristics of what it is to be the Christian is genuine humility. Because your natural fleshly self is wantonly egocentric, and you desire the things of your flesh, and you desire the things that you desire, and you think that just because you desire it, that's a good reason why you ought to have it. And yet, the Bible keeps saying, over and over, over and over, over and over, it keeps saying, humility. Think of others before yourself. Put on a heart of gentleness and patience. in my earlier days I had a temper I mean I had a temper have I told you about the temper I had oh man did I have a temper oh wow and so as I was coming into the realization of Christianity in my early 30s and beginning to understand the Bible and understand what it meant to be a Christian that was something I struggled with patience and I kept praying to God that I want patience and I want it now now You know, right, I I got no time to wait, let's go. But gentleness and patience and through the years God has whittled away at me and chopped off those hard edges and those pointy edges and has caused me to be gentle and patient with people. You know, even when we are correcting people, even when we are instructing people, we're told to do it with gentleness and patience to be patient with each other, to put up with each other, but also to correct each other, but to do it in a way where you're not attacking people, where you're not letting your temper and your anger get the best of you. And boy, it is a human characteristic, and girl, not just boy, girl. It is a human characteristic that when we get the angriest, it's when we're correcting somebody. You've wronged me, you've crossed me, you've done something unlike the way that I would want it done, and therefore I'm going to correct you, and why don't you do that, and why don't you ever do that again, I to. oh man, we just take off at that moment. And so the Bible says, act exactly different to what your fleshly tendency is, and when you talk to somebody, when you correct somebody, when you instruct somebody, do it gently and patiently. And by the way, I will add, that is a much more effective way to teach people. You know the old phrase, people don't, well, let's see, how how does the phrase go? You know the old phrase that I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) People don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. When people can perceive that you care about them, then they're going to listen to what it is you know and what it is you're going to tell them because they know that you're telling them from a good place. You're telling them out of a kind heart. You're telling them out of empathy and compassion and you're not instructing them for your own ego or to make yourself look better. That you're instructing them for, this, for the purpose of their own edification. So... Put on a heart of compassion, a heart of kindness, a heart of humility, a heart of gentleness and patience, and this is what that would look like, bearing with one another. Whenever I read phrases like that, I paraphrase it as putting up with each other, but I think it's much more than just putting up with. It's not just tolerating each other. It means actually Bearing each other's burdens, recognizing when someone is in pain, when someone is struggling, and come alongside them, and recognizing when someone is joy and sharing the joy with them. Again, here's an old phrase that I like, and this one I remember. A sorrow that is shared is half the sorrow. Joy that is shared is twice the joy. And so, part of what it is to bear with each other is to come alongside each other, to be compassionate, empathetic, kind, humble, gentle, patient with each other, not merely tolerating each other, but helping each other. And forgiving each other. That is not, by the way, let's make this contrast one more time, That is not how the world works. The world, in its flesh, in its ego, in its continual me-first-ism, is not quick to forgive. The world is quick to condemn. The world is quick to point out all your faults. That is what is unique and distinct about Christianity and what it is to be the Christian that you Forgive other people. Now, what is your motivation for forgiving other people? Well, it's the same as your motivation for loving Christ. We love Christ because he first loved us. We forgive other people because he first forgave us. And he didn't just forgive you like passing over your offenses. He paid the very high price for your offenses. He forgave you to the furthest degree of forgiving that exists, which is self-sacrifice on behalf of you when you hated him. Okay, well, if that is the case, then can he ask you to forgive each other? In fact, can he put it in the imperative form as it is here and tell you to forgive each other which by the way is what a compassionate kind, humble, gentle, patient person would do so don't be looking for each other's faults don't be looking for things that you can complain about don't look for things that you can argue about forgive each other Whoever has a complaint against anyone. Notice those pronouns. Whoever, anyone. That's expansive. That's across the board. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. As the Lord forgave, so should you. Now the primary reason that some people find it difficult to forgive other people. And the reason that they want to hang on to the offense is because they do get fleshly, they do get riled up. And they start thinking, well, you deserve it. You deserve a bit of my wrath, you deserve a bit of my anger because you really, really wronged me. Well that is why love is spoken of as a sacrifice and that is why forgiveness is a sacrificial act to those people you sacrificially love and therefore you are to approach those people in humility, gentleness, and patience and you are to forgive them based on the fact that Christ forgave you even though you did not deserve it. And they might deserve it. And it might take a lot of sacrifice from you to forgive them. But it took a whole eternity of sacrifice on Christ's part to forgive you. So then how much sacrifice should you put into it? And beyond all these, here we come full circle I began, weeks and weeks ago, I began in this series by saying the definite hallmark of Christianity is love. Jesus said, by this will all men know that you are my disciples by your love, one for the other, beyond all these things. What are these things? Bearing with one another, forgiving one another. Whoever has a complaint against you, just as the Lord forgave you, so should you forgive. Put on that heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. And then beyond all those, put on sacrificial love. It all comes back to that. That's why I said earlier, think about the phenomenal depth and breadth of the God who loved you when you were unlovable many of you still are <laughs> No, I'm kind of serious because you know that you still act sometimes like an enemy of God you know that sometimes you give in to your flesh and you give in to sin and he loves you anyway he loved you because he knew you were going to be like that and loved you anyway And demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's an enormous demonstration of an absolutely eternal saving love. Therefore, he says to you, now love each other sacrificially. He demonstrated it. He did it. He's not asking you to do anything that's out of bounds or inappropriate. He's telling you, because you are different, because you have the Holy Spirit in you, because you are separated from the world, don't be like the egocentric world. Instead, be like humble Christians. Forgive one another and love one another. By the way, in the world we live in, Sometimes when we say the word love, we get these gears in our head where we start thinking about emotional love, where we start thinking about, you know, the the passion of love, the love that causes people to marry each other, emotional love. There is a Greek word. There are actually three Greek words that are translated love. One of them does not appear in the Bible. It's the word eros, from which we get words like erotic. That kind of love. The Bible never mentions that. The Bible never brings that up. Instead, you get phileo. Instead, you get words like this, sacrificial love, agape. And so God is not talking about You being loving based on you feeling the emotion of love toward another person. You're not told feel eros toward other people and then sacrifice as a result of that. What you're told is feel sacrificial love toward people because God sacrificed for you And you have that kind of compassion and concern for them and their well-being that you're willing to sacrifice yourself for the good of the one that you are loving actively. Whether or not they know it, whether or not they feel it, whether or not they respond to it, you do the sacrificial thing. You do what is right and proper. You be compassionate, forgive other people, love each other sacrificially By the way, that kind of sacrificial love would save many of the marriages that I have ever counseled of couples who said, I don't know, I just don't feel it anymore. God doesn't say that your marriage is for the purpose of feeling it. He says your marriage is for your commitment to sacrifice for each other. That's the kind of love that we're instructed to have. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. It's a wonderful phrase. The way that we would have a perfect bond of unity as a church, not just GCA here in this building, but The church around the world, the way that we would have unity with other people and have that perfect bond of unity is if we have sacrificial love for one another. I've seen it demonstrated. I've seen it as an example. I have walked into churches that I was invited to speak at where I knew maybe two people, three people. And I walk in and I find brothers and I find sisters and I find people with a like mind and a like heart. And even though we have nothing in common and there is no way that we would ever have found each other and become friends under any other circumstances, but we feel the immediate bond of the spirit of God and love for the word of God between us. And right away, there is that bond of unity and the perfect bond of unity only comes when everybody in the room has sacrificial love for each other. That's the goal of the church. The goal of the church, just like Jesus said, by this they're going to know that you're my disciples. By your love, one for another. And now Paul is saying that kind of sacrificial love brings about the perfect bond of unity. Let's be honest. Every one of us, as faulty, psychologically damaged human beings, the one thing that we want out of life is for somebody to love us. Wouldn't it be wonderful if you could be in a community of people where they all loved you, where they were all looking out for your welfare, for your well-being? Wouldn't it be great to be in that kind of community where you knew you just couldn't fall because they would pick you up again and take care of you, that they would share your burdens and share your joys? Wouldn't that be great? Well, That's what the church is supposed to be. That's why church exists. Sometimes I think we've forgotten the purpose of church. It is to create that perfect bond of unity so that we are here looking out for each other, taking care of each other, because we are compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient. So we bear with each other and we forgive each other. And if someone has a complaint against us, well then as the Lord forgave us, we forgive them. And we have sacrificial love for them. We have this bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. To which you were called in one body. What's that one body? The church. The body of Christ. You were called into that one body. You're not here randomly. You're not here by mistake. You were called by God and you were placed in the body of Christ. And he placed you here at GCA. Otherwise you wouldn't. Be here, But he placed you into the church, he called you into that body, therefore the peace of Christ should rule in your heart. And that's everything that I was trying to describe at the beginning of this morning when I said we walk through this life, through this crazy world, and we have this sense of calm, we have this sense of peace, we have this sense that God has got our back. Peace that passes understanding that the world can't possibly understand and the reason is because one of the imperatives is that we let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts and by the way if the peace of Christ is ruling in your heart he's going to make you compassionate and kind and humble and gentle and patient and you are going to bear with each other and you are going to be kind with, to each other because you have the peace of Christ in your heart So you don't fly off. So you don't become overly angry. You don't let your fierce wrath be known. Beyond all these things, put on love. Which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Not just reside in your heart. Let the peace of Christ rule in your heart. He has absolute lordship. He has absolute rulership in your heart. That kind of leaves you without an excuse, doesn't it? I mean, if you're going to say that you're Christian, this is what your imperative looks like. And be thankful. I wrote on Facebook this week, if you're continually looking for something to complain about, you'll find it. If you're continually looking for things to be thankful for, you'll find them. Be thankful. I mean, after everything that I've been describing now for weeks and weeks in this whole Be a Christian series. And recognizing everything that God has done for you and we're not finished yet. How can you not be thankful? How can you not recognize that it's not you that's doing these things. It's the God who created everything, the sovereign master of the universe, who chose you out of your own depravity and called you to himself and then empowered you to himself and then made you wonderful promises about your future, if that's not enough to create thankfulness in you, then you're doing it wrong. You don't understand genuine Christianity. Let the word of Christ richly dwell in you remember earlier I said great benefit God has given you his word so now that God has given you his word should you just take it haphazardly should you take it randomly or should you pay attention to it should you actually not only read it but ingest it should it become the rule for your life Well, let the word of God richly dwell in you. Dwell, remain, take up habitation, live out its life in you and through you. And it can only do that if you're familiar with it. You need to spend time with it. You need to meditate on it. Let the word of God richly dwell in you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Okay, now our subject is that your life has purpose and that your work, your talents, your passions, your parenting, whatever it is that you find to do, you do it all to God's glory. It would have been easy for me to pluck Verse 17 out here and use that as my proof text, but I wanted to read everything before it because it describes what it is to actually be a Christian, but verse 17 says, whatever you do in word or deed, that means whatever you're doing, whatever you're saying, however you're talking, however you're communicating, and whatever your hand finds to do Do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father. Do it all in the name of Christ Jesus. If you ever really got a sense of that, if you ever really got a hold of the idea that everything you say and do, you are to do to the glory of God and in the name of the Lord Jesus, how many things would that stop you from doing? Yeah. Because we think we're getting away with stuff every once in a while. The stuff that we think maybe God didn't see or we presumptuously assume that God's going to forgive us for. Again, whatever it is you do, it's your job, it's your relationship, it's the way you parent, it's the way that you treat your neighbor. Whatever it is that you do and whatever it is you say. Whatever it is in word or deed, whatever you do in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Giving thanks through Christ to God. God gave Christ, Christ paid for you, you're given to the Son, therefore you have peace with the Father through the Son. And so you're to go thank God for the many manifold blessings he has given you and the only way you have the ability to go before that throne and talk to him at all is through your mediator Jesus Christ big benefits big, big benefits but your life every aspect of your life, everything in your life is all part of who you are as a Christian and it is all supposed to demonstrate word or deed that you are inhabited by a Holy Spirit, and that you do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks through him to God the Father. Turn to Ephesians 2. You're all going to be familiar with this, one of the more popularly quoted phrases from the Bible, by grace are you saved through faith. We're not going to concentrate necessarily on the theology of by grace are you saved through faith. I will just assume that everybody in the room at this moment and most of the people on the internet understand that our theology of salvation, our understanding of soteriology is that you are saved by grace through faith. That God inspires faith in you by his Holy Spirit, but you're not being tried based on your works, but by your faith. I I think we all get that, right? It is grace by God that allows that to happen. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And that... Now, every time I read this, I feel compelled to kind of point out some of the Greek grammar here, just so you understand it. The word that is a demonstrative pronoun... That's in the neuter form. And there is a rule in Greek grammar that when you see a pronoun like that, it has to agree in gender and in number with whatever the antecedent of the pronoun is. So when we talk about grace and saved and faith, they would have to agree in number and in gender with the word that, if the word that is referring to any of those. And Arminian folks are quick to point out to us that the word that is neutered and the words grace and faith are a female gender, I do believe. Saved variations of it. Salvation are are in a masculine gender oftentimes. So that means that the pronoun does not agree in gender with the word grace or saved or faith. And so they will say, yes, it's gracious of God, but the faith part, you got to do it. You got to stir up your own faith. You got to work your own faith. That the only thing that the word that can possibly be referring to is the word grace. That's the only thing that God does here. You do the rest. But there is also a rule in Greek grammar that when you find a neuter demonstrative pronoun like this, if it doesn't agree in gender and number with any antecedent in the previous phrase, it is because the writer was using the neuter demonstrative pronoun in order to refer back to the entirety of the previous phrase. You got that? In other words, by grace, you didn't do that. That counts as the that. You've been saved. That counts as that. Through faith. Counts as that. In other words, you've been saved by grace through faith. All of it inclusively is what Paul is referring to when he uses the word that. In other words, you don't do any of it. It is, as Paul says now, a gift of God. God gave you the grace, God gave you the faith, and God saved you. It is a gift of God, it is not the result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, we're his creation. He made us for his own purposes, for his own reasons. He called us to be a separate, unique, distinct, holy people, separated from the world and not like the world because we are his workmanship you don't belong to yourself I know that we egocentrically think that we are independent agents out here doing the best that we can and doing whatever we choose to do you don't belong to you you belong to God he called you, he chose you, he redeemed you, he paid a price for you you are not your own You are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay, the largest subject this morning is whatever it is that we do, whatever work, whatever talents, whatever parenting, whatever passions, whatever talents, whatever, even the suffering that we do, that it is all to the glory of God. Here he has told us that the good works that we do, we do because He prepared them for us beforehand. Not only do we not get credit for them, but it is part of how we walk out our life. We walk out our life in accord with what God has already determined for us, and what he has determined for us is that we are different, unique people. For we are his workmanship. We are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would... Walk in them. That word walk, you know, means live out your life. The way you conduct yourself, the way that you behave, the way that you conduct yourself with other people, the way that you conduct yourself in the church, and even the good things that you do in this life, if they're done in Christ's name, that's the only way they could be called good works. Because everything about human beings is intrinsically evil. Jesus said it, if you being evil know how to give good things to your sons, so he admits you're evil, that's what human beings are intrinsically, so there are no works you could do that could qualify as good works. But the works that God ordained for you to do, the works that you do through Jesus Christ, things like putting on a heart of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience and bearing with each other and forgiving each other. And if somebody has a complaint against you, you forgive them because the Lord forgave you. You're not going to be like that except that God had ordained that you would walk in that, that God would ordain that you would be like that. So that's why you walk in good works. By the way, this is, again, an indicative. This is who you are. This is what you're like. We are his workmanship. That's who you are. Created in Christ Jesus for good works. That's who you are. Which God prepared beforehand so that you would live by them. Walk in them. Turn to 1 Thessalonians. Turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. We're going to start reading in verse 12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you. I should say, this is just context. I didn't yank this particular phrase out just so that I could say, hey, 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 appreciate me. (laughs) But long as we're here, you know. (laughs) It's right there black and white we request of you brethren that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love not because of them not because of their character not because of their nature I know I make it easy for people to dislike me i am practiced at it I have 64 years of saying and doing things that would naturally make people dislike me. I get it. But he is urging that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. I was talking to Jeff yesterday on the phone. Jeff said something to the effect of, better you than me. He said, it must get tiring. I said, it does. It gets really tiring. Elder Ward one time said to me, it's not that we get tired of the work. We get tired in the work. And sometimes, I don't want to do this no more. I'm tired. But we do the work. And so you are to appreciate the work and esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Then, Having dealt with that, the leaders within the church, he then says, and live in peace with one another. That word, irene, I'm going to keep driving it home until it's tattooed to your brain. That word essentially means the stopping or the cessation of againstness. You and God were at one time against each other. You and God at one time, you were an enemy and he was righteous and holy. And you didn't have any ability to stop the againstness between the two of you. So he took on the responsibility of stopping the againstness. And through Christ he created peace between you and your creator. Therefore you are told as a body, as the church, as the body of Christ. You are told to live in peace with each other. After all if God could sacrifice his son to make peace between you and him, how much more ought you labor to keep the peace with each other? And I mean, labor. Paul uses that language that we labor to keep the bonds of peace. That means it takes work, it takes effort, it takes self sacrifice. But we ought to be willing to do it for one another, well, because we're being kind and compassionate and loving and patient with each other. Live in peace with each other. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. There is certainly a place within the church, within the body of Christ, there is certainly a place for church discipline. There is certainly a place for correcting people, but let's be clear about this. The purpose of church discipline is never for the purpose of driving the disciplined person out of the church. The reason for church discipline is to restore them to fellowship. The purpose of church discipline is to correct one another. So then admonish anyone who is unruly and encourage the faint-hearted, I am so glad that the faint-hearted is included. In Paul's writing because every once in a while that describes me any of you every once in a while it's it's tough this Christian journey is tough I'm not saying that it's always easy it's not all rainbows and kumbaya every once in a while life can be so hard on you that you start to doubt you start to think where is God in the midst of all this and you become faint hearted your faith is not strong It's a good thing to know that even when we are weak, God remains faithful to us regardless of our faint heartedness. But part of what it is to be the body of Christ, part of what it is to be the church, is to encourage the faint hearted. Come alongside, bring them along, help them to understand, help the weak, Paul says, and be patient with everyone there's a tough one I'm willing to be patient with most people but every once in a while somebody comes up against me I'm not as willing to be patient and yet the imperative here is that we're to be patient with everyone within the body of Christ within the church of Jesus Christ do you have a sense yet of the qualities that Paul expects that the word of God expects out of people who have been separated from the world, who are considered as hagios set aside, there is behavior that goes with it that is definitional to what it is to be a Christian. See that no one repays another with evil for evil. That's our tendency. You're bad to me, I'm going to be twice as bad to you. You're evil to me, you don't know the kind of evil I'm going to whoop up on you. And here's Paul saying, don't repay evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Always seek after that which is good. That requires sacrifice that's why I keep saying the kind of love that the Bible describes is sacrificial love and if you sacrificially love other people then you're always going to be looking for the good for other people rather than paying them back evil for evil because if you start counting sins and counting offenses and waiting for people to be evil they always will they'll always offend you they'll always do or say something that, that just stirs your sense of righteous indignation They're always going to do that, and yet here within the church, to keep the bonds of unity within the church, we are told that you should not repay evil with evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. That is one of the places where I got my definition for sacrificial love, which I have said repeatedly so that you all ought to be able to repeat it by now. But sacrificial love is doing what is best for the person being loved, regardless of whether the person being loved understands it or appreciates it or recognizes that you're the one that did it. Still, you love them enough sacrificially that you're willing to do for them what is in their best interest. See that no one repays another evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all people. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. In everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Now you have this whole list of imperatives and then you're told that's God's will for you. So this imperative is not just An opinion by an apostle who decided that maybe he could make life slightly better for himself if he could get everybody in the church to behave better instead he understands that it is the very will of God that you behave like this because it is 180 degrees different than the way the world acts and if you were in the world and redeemed from the world then you ought to act opposite to the world and that kind of opposition to the world is not going to make you popular in the world that kind of opposition to the world is going to make you unique and distinct and you might actually suffer some hardship and people might actually persecute you because you're not of this world. If you were of the world the world would love its own, says Jesus but you are not of the world. I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hates you and then we, the hated the ones that the world hates we all get together on a regular basis and we reassure each other And we build each other up, and we're compassionate to one another. We're long-suffering and patient with each other. We correct each other. We come alongside the faint-hearted. And we, as a body, as a group, for Christ's sake, continue in this God-forsaken world for the glory of God and for the purpose of our faith in Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. One more verse, 1 John chapter 1. When I talk about the proof of the resurrection, one of the more convincing proofs that the resurrection was an actual event that took place in human history is to look at the history of certain apostles. Apostles. There are consistent personality profiles that were given in the Bible of men like Peter, Mr. Sandal in mouth. Peter, always saying the wrong thing, always making mistakes like Tom read this morning. He saw Jesus with Elijah and uh, Moses, made the mistake of saying, let me build three tabernacles, one for each of you. And then the voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Hear him. And he looked up and the other two are gone and Jesus is there alone. And so Peter consistently saying the wrong thing, doing the wrong thing. And yet at some point he had such a shift in personality, such a change in personality He's the one who swore three times on the night that Jesus died. He said, I don't know him, just to save his own skin. And yet he was the one that was willing to stand up in front of the Jews on the day of Pentecost and say, you killed the Prince of Life. Where did that bravery come from? Where did that boldness come from? Something changed. He experienced something. He saw something that moved him, that changed him. Well, same thing with the Apostle John. The Apostle John and his brothers had a nickname that Jesus had given them. Do you remember the nickname? It was Sons of Thunder. What kind of temper did these guys have? The example that we're given is that there were some people there who opposed Jesus, and he said, you want us to call down lightning on them? Let's burn them. And Jesus says, you don't know what kind of men you are. It's not what I'm here for. And so he referred to them from that day forward as the sons of thunder. Okay, pretty funny. That gives you a good sense of what John is like. And then he's at the foot of the cross. And he hears Jesus say, son, behold your mother, mother, behold your son. He's given the responsibility to take care of Mary And he's there, the only of the apostles actually at the cross. And then everything we read of him from that point forward, he becomes known in history as the apostle of love. The son of thunder becomes the apostle of love. Something dramatic changed in that guy. I argue that what changed is he saw the risen Lord. He saw him on a cross. He saw him die. And then he saw him alive again. And he was changed. That's all background to what we're about to read. To kind of close up the morning. Notice the word kind of. Starting in 1 John 1 verse 5. This is the message that we have heard from him and announced to you. Okay, there's no question about where this is coming from. This is the message that we heard from him. We heard this from Christ and now we're telling you. That God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. That's why we say that God is pure and sinless. Doesn't change. Not even the shadow of change. No variableness in him at all. In him is pure light. The light that no man approaches. And in him there is no darkness at all. Now you can see, by the way, why when we get to Revelation 22, someday in the future, because we're still in the course of talking about the benefits of Christianity, we have to talk about New Jerusalem. When we get to that point, after we've done all the other eschatological stuff, you're going to see that there is no sun, moon, or stars in the New Jerusalem because God is ever-present, and he is the light that enlightens our future home. Pretty cool. God is light and there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that one that's all light and there's no darkness, and yet we walk in the darkness, yet we conduct ourselves in darkness. So what is darkness there? The analogy should be pretty obvious. The analogy between light and dark is holiness and righteousness versus sinfulness. If we say that we know God and we walk in sinfulness, wanton sinfulness, we practice our debauchery, then here's the conclusion, we lie. So what's our lie? Is our lie that we don't really walk in darkness? Because that's the lie that most people try to tell. They try to justify themselves and say, well, I'm not that dark. I'm kind of dark, but I'm not, I'm not as bad as that guy. No, the lie is saying that you're in fellowship with him. Because you're not in fellowship with the one who is eternally light. If you are constantly walking in darkness. Darkness. So your behavior, the way that you walk, the way that you conduct your life is actually a demonstration of whether or not you are connected to the light, to the God who made everything. If we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light... What's the subject today? It's that everything in our life, regardless of what it is, everything our hand finds to do, everything that we say, every situation and event that we find ourselves in, all of it should be done for the glory of God. All of it should be done with the consciousness that this is what God has purpose for us, and therefore everything we do has purpose. It all fits his purpose. And that's what it is, to walk In the light, to walk in the knowledge and the understanding that Sovereign God has your back and that He's going to take care of you in this lifetime. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Where did I begin this series? of the benefits of Christianity. I started with Christ has forgiven all your sin. That's the first big benefit. Christ has forgiven you all your sin. Now, John has combined the notion that Jesus has forgiven all your sin with how you behave as a result. You're to walk in the light, and walking in the light is a true demonstration that we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. so no matter how orthodox your theology may be no matter how orthodox your soteriology may be I know those are a whole lot of silver dollar words but if your orthodoxy does not lead to orthopraxy you're doing it wrong all that means is if your theology doesn't affect the way you behave you're doing it wrong because if you walk in the light as he himself is in the light he's in the light therefore you walk in the light then we have fellowship with one another we're all collectively in the light and as I just said when we all get to New Jerusalem we will truly all every day walk in the light the very light of God and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin if we say we have no sin we looked at this weeks ago we say we have no sin we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us and if we confess our sins then he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness if we say that we have not sinned we make him a liar and his word is not in us okay so wrapping up five minute summary here might take 10 minutes but I'll be done in at least 15 I hope that you can see as we've been going through this series I hope you can see that genuine Christianity genuine biblical Christianity is more than just getting your theology right it's more than just getting your soteriological ducks in a row Genuine Christianity makes that journey from your brain down to your heart. And it changes the way you think, and it changes the way you behave. And time and time again, the Bible says, like John just did, if that change has not happened, you're not yet Christian. If all you have is head knowledge about Jesus, but you don't actually know Jesus well, then your Christianity is still incomplete. Genuine Christianity, the Holy Spirit of an almighty God taking up residence in you, would change you. It seems kind of axiomatic to me. And he would change you in ways that make you more like the God who saved you and more like the Christ who forgave you and would make you appreciative and thankful for everything they did for you And on the basis of everything that the triune God did for you, that becomes your motivation to forgive other people and to love other people sacrificially because it will take sacrifice, but you have not yet resisted unto blood striving against sin. Christ did. You haven't yet, and yet you're called to strive against your own sin And to walk in the light. Danielle. Come here. When I say here. I mean there. Come there. I'm going to call an audible. Turn if you would. In your hymnals. To 483. We are going to sing. Oh how I love Jesus because he first loved me. Steve, if you would.
0: We